Hello and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander and joining me today is... That's Chris Carter, a long time no here. I know, it's very great to have you back in our uh, virtual recording studio, as it were. And you've also recorded an interview for us this week with Paul Hedges. Can you tell us a little about this episode? I have indeed. Um, I'll, I'll not bore you too much because I, I, I go off. I go off on one at the beginning, um, uh, talking about what the episode is going to be. Um, but I, I've gone for a punchy title of "How woke is your textbook?" So Paul um, invited me over the summer to participate in an author meets critics session on a new textbook that he had produced which is called understanding religion so you know like a nice uh, humble um title for the book but actually the, the the book is it's fantastic um i didn't think we needed a new textbook um in the academic study of religion and also you know i, I touched on this a little bit in the interview um, uh, Paul Hedges has actually had sort of uh, some interactions on the RSP website uh, we're sort of rubbing up perhaps against an, another perspective in the study of religion uh, look up the Temu Taira episode on discursive study and look at the responses to that. Nice plug, yeah Yeah, yeah. so I, I thought on the basis of that when I initially was going to read the book I was like oh, I, I'm maybe not going to enjoy this book and it turned out I was wrong. Um, he's done a great nice. job of pulling together a nicely. Um, obviously, it's not a decolonial textbook, but it's a very good attempt at doing that sort of thing uh, and talking about the, the field as it is today. He gives lots of different perspectives. Um, a fair shot, I think. Um, and so we just talk about the, the processes of of doing that. How, how do you make a textbook? Why would you even make a textbook in, in this day and age when, you know, people are reading everything sure. online, if they're reading anything at all? <laughs> so um, that, that's what we attempted to, to cover. And then we get at the, you know, into those issues of decoloniality and what the word critical means. So these are all RSP type questions, I would say. Yeah, very much so. That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to listen. So how about you take it away? The construction of the introductory textbook in the academic study of religion is an incredibly fraught enterprise, as I'm sure regular listeners to the Religious Studies Project will know. What will you include? What will you exclude? What organizing rubrics will you have in mind? Which voices will you highlight and who will be included or excluded. And particularly in our contemporary world where attention spans are short and resources are online for study and personal interest, what would even be the purpose of producing a textbook uh, in these times? Um, I have the real pleasure today of being joined by uh, Paul Hedges, um, who has taken on that monumental task. Uh, Paul is Associate Professor in the Studies in Interreligious Relations in Plural Societies program at the RSIS Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. And he's the author of Religious Hatred, 
prejudice, Islamophobia, and anti-Semitism in global contexts. But today, the real motivation for our conversation was the fairly recent publication of his monumental, massive textbook, Understanding Religion, Theories and Methods for Studying Religiously Diverse Societies. So first off, uh, Paul Hedges, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Chris. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, and joining us um, by the means of the internet um, from Singapore, it's the morning in Scotland, it's the evening there. Uh, so thank you for um, meeting me outside of the, the normal working day, I guess, although as an academic, when yeah, is when the end of the working day? <laughs> um, so... I, I came across this book when Paul invited me to to be part of a, an Authors Meets Critics sort of book launch um, over the summer of 2021. And, you know, I, I must confess, and Paul and I were just chatting that when, when the invitation came through, I was thinking, you know, oh, do we do we really need a, another textbook here? There's so many of them out there. The market's fairly saturated. What's Paul going to be doing here that um is anything different um but i i was really pleasantly surprised um it, it's a fantastic collection I've, I've recommended it to to quite a few people uh since uh, and we'll be we'll be talking specifically about about the book throughout this interview but just to, to say if, if you're looking for something that is up-to-date current nicely balanced is really rich in terms of its case studies and examples is really nicely student centric makes no assumptions but is comprehensive i mean there's some things in here you know i haven't heard things like postmodernism or sui generis or the cognitive study of science of religion introduced in such clear and concise ways um and i've dipped into it on several occasions since uh, for my own uh, research purposes just to sort of get get inspiration and find sources and get sort of good pricey on various topics so and the other thing to say about it is it's it takes the the current um positive trend towards decolonialization uh kind of head on and, and embraces that and i think provides an excellent model for for scholars going forward and into how one might attempt to decolonize the, the curriculum in some way, shape, or form. So I'll just give that plug. It's an excellent book, and, and I thought it would be fantastic to get Paul onto the RSP. So thank you, Paul, for the book, first off. Um, but one one of the themes, and perhaps just to kick us off um, throughout the book, is, is on the positionality of the scholar and how that influences uh, everything about what we do, how we theorize how we teach and so on and your own positionality and your, your your journey has been highly influential on the desire to produce this book and the the contents therein so perhaps you just tell us a bit about positionality in general and how it affects things and, and your own okay thanks very much for the incredibly generous words there chris um but yes i mean you're absolutely right the journey is all important. Autobiography is part of who we are, not just as human beings, but as academics. 
Um, and understanding that, I, I think it's taken me a long time. I'm just over 50 years old now, so my academic journey has been going on um, for some time. And as you mentioned, I'm now based in Singapore, um, and I'm teaching here in a school of international relations, basically. Um, so I'm not in a religious studies course. And so that position, as you said, is part of sort of what lay behind this, um, because I'm teaching a, a course to master's students on sort of how to introduce, if you like, a theory and method of the study of religion. And of course, we have these esoteric debates within our own sort of discipline within the field. Um, and for people outside of it, if they're just taking one course in religious studies, you know, why should this matter to them? And how does it relate to anything else that they do in their studies or their life? So as I've been teaching here, this is something I've been thinking about. And, you know, I was trying to sort of pull resources together from all over the place to answer this. Um, and it simply was hard and there was nothing that did it to do it. Um, and that kind of like is why you say, well, why not a book? You know, I looked and I thought, mm. OK, yes, the market is saturated. I don't want to write an introductory book, but there just isn't one that does the job I'm looking for. Um, and partly I started sort of putting things together simply for my students. And then I realized, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book here. Why not pitch this? Um, unfortunately, mm. California University Press, um, Eric, my commission editor there, are very excited by this project. Um, and yes, in doing this, I said I've tried to do something quite <coughs> different from what already exists. But I thought there's, there's no point in sort of, you know, redoing the wheel over again, um, which I said partly comes from this being in Singapore, in this position. Um, but of course, it's a book written from my background, sort of 10 years I was um, in the UK or over 10 years sort of there. Um, I also spent sort of three years teaching in China, not religious studies, obviously. Um, primarily an English mm. teacher when I, I was there. Um, but again, that sort of leads into my sort of, if you like, position as a teacher. How do you sort of speak clearly and easily to sort of people? Um, and again, the voice I've sort of found in this book, you know, it's not the natural one, when I first started as a sort of an academic, just finished my PhD, you know, we kind of try and train to write in really obscure ways. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a friend of mine, sort of very smart chap, much smarter than my sort of mathematician, said, you tried to read a book and he didn't understand it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's been, if you like, at least 20 years of me learning how to communicate effectively, which also comes into this. Yeah, absolutely, and it it sounds quite like a. Um, you know, I've recently joined the Open University, um, which is a fantastic institution, um, but I'm definitely having to untrain a lot of the academic writing uh, that that I've learned over the years because, um, you, really, for that sort of audience, you're trying to to write as you would talk, and as you would talk in a sort of very introductory um lecture for example um and it's just you know untraining the desire to be constantly referencing and backing everything up and using the most complicated sounding words that you can and, and you do achieve that very well in the book um but a, a couple of um things then uh, your use of case studies um in the volume which i've mentioned already and as i'll say 
if you are utilizing the book and you one of the main draws for me is being able to go oh could if what would be a great case study oh paul's book i'll have something on that from a nice diverse context that you know all my examples come from the uk scotland so that that's or maybe the states and so on so it's great to have that but but what was the motivation for the case study and what's the place of the case study in in the volume and how do you use them in in your teaching okay well two sort of kind of directions as to where the case study comes from. Um, one of them I need to, I guess, sort of shout out to Professor Abdullah Saeed from Melbourne. He's an Islamic studies scholar. Um, but the programme I'm in here, it, it was just set up when I arrived. He was the advisor to the programme. Um, and he very much insisted on us doing case studies as part of our teaching. And I said, this is partly, I mean, we have a, a an international relations school, we have strategic studies. That basically means sort of war studies um, as, as part of what we do. So this kind of like, you know, maybe more law school, business school kind of tradition of doing case studies of sort of um, uh, sort of war gaming as well as sort of part of what students will do in some mm. courses um, is it, kind of something that makes sense to them here. So it's something I've kind of sort of learned while being in Singapore I mean, I kind of done it before, but not very well. I think, you know, something we all do, oh, here's a case study, but it's basically an example which we're then talking about. Mm-hmm. And if you like a case study properly, if you go back, I think it was Harvard Law School sort of first came up with this a long time ago and sort of theorized how to do this properly. Um, it is something I've sort of brought in. The other sort of route, looking at this in the study of religion, the only person I think has really done it well is Diana Eck at the Pluralism project and of course mm. a lot of religious studies scholars they're very suspicious of diana Eck and like the pluralism dialogue kind of stuff that goes on um mm. but you know she does these amazing case studies they've written hundreds of them like real life examples this is sort of what happens now you've got the example now put the theory into it how do you think about this situation um so it's kind of if you like sort of those examples if you like from the business and law schools and from Diana Eck's work as to how this works to some extent looking at religion um, is where I grew from and of course partly being in Singapore these have to be global examples Mm. because it makes sense here Um, also the book has more American examples than it would have had originally because the publisher said you know we need more America in here else people won't understand it (laughs) Um, which is one of those facets Um, and I mean, again, maybe back, this is sort of a slightly different point, but back to mentioning like sort of the language, because I'm sort of here and I've got students, you know, in Singapore, we've got students from all over the world, you know, not just sort of locals, not just Asians, but all across Europe, across the Americas. And again, maybe he's like a very small example, but I think it points to some of this. You know, when I first started writing my drafts, I would talk about Theravada Buddhists and Mahayana Buddhists, but Catholics and Protestants I thought, well, what am I doing here? Why are they not Catholic Christians and Protestant Christians? Everything mm-hmm. has to be the same. And again, of course, sort of part of this, you know, we have these things, any book you read, there's this, from the West, as you said, there's this kind of Christian sort of sense of bias and presumption. You know, and lots mm-hmm. of my students, you know, they, they've come from Buddhist or Taoist families or something. They've got no idea sort of, you know, if I say the Exodus, and of course, I mean, in the UK, you don't expect these people these days necessarily to understand what that means, mm-hmm. but they'll have heard the word and hear no assumptions. So kind of breaking down 
any assumption that anybody knows anything about anything. Um, and again, that sort of maybe, you know, case studies really clearly set out, and then you've got the theory coming into it. Fantastic. And I think that'll that'll definitely come up towards the end when I, I will want to take decolonizing um head on. Um but but you're mentioning of the Diana Eck and the pluralism project and so on. Um leads me quite nicely to to another point in that you the book is sort of situated in in a number of um scholarly discourses i suppose and i think you, you say quite early on that you do position the book in the context of in, interreligious studies um and i know that that term can cover a whole variety of uh, approaches and Perhaps we could say ideologies and so on. So I just wondered if you could say what what being within a, a broad interreligious studies framework means for the book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, interreligious studies, it's a very new term. I think most of scholars, religious studies, theology or whatever, around the study of religion or outside that will have no idea really what it signifies. Um, and there's also debates internally within it. Now, maybe just step back, why do I put myself here? Um, if you mm. like, my interest in study has always been, if you like, sort of where religions, where cultures, where traditions meet. You know, that's sort of how do you make sense from somebody from a completely different world? Um, and my PhD it was sort of on 19th century sort of Christian missionary theology in India. You know, this sort of this understanding of worldviews and their meeting is, is really what fascinates me and drew me into religious studies. Um, mm. So in a sense, sort of, you know, in terms of doing that, it has been around, you know, these interreligious encounters that, that drives a lot of my work. So I, I've naturally sort of gone on to conferences and networks with, where people are talking about this stuff, um, which, of course, in many other places, you know, you've got the Buddhist group and the Hindu group and, you know, they're, they're each bracketed out and that sort of crossover right. doesn't always come in. Now, having said that, if you turn up to something like the AAR, the American Academy of Religion, their interreligious studies group, there's lots of theologians there. There are chaplains there, like from their universities, how do you make sense of religious diversity? Um, but there's also if you like, sort of groups of scholars associated with this from sociology, from history, from sort of out of religious studies, you know, who are basically interested in, in the phenomenon of, you know, sort of, of making sense of diversity. Um, and that's really why I'm sort of putting this this book. I mean, it is not a, you know, it's not a, like a sort of a book to tell people all oh, religious diversity is a great thing. You know, let's embrace it and sort of become pluralists. Um, it's not, if you like, sort of written for many of that. It's this sort of how do people understand sort of diversity? What is that? What does it do? So in a sense, it's basically, if you like, if I say it's a critical religious studies take on how to understand religious diversity. That's where I put myself mm. in the interreligious studies camp. And I think it sort of drives some of the interests. So like sort of the third chapter I've been mean, on life is a title around sort of lived religion. Um, and I particularly talk about sort of syncretism because again, the way religious studies is so often taught and it's developed, I said you could get these totally sort of siloed little sort of boxes. Um, and within that, there's no way to make sense of the fact that like that Vishnu, obviously a Hindu god under our normal boxes, is the protector of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. 
Why? What on earth? Mm. It makes no sense. And people say, this makes no sense. It's syncretism. And what on earth does syncretism even mean? I mean, so showing, if you like, the fact that, again, it's like our boxes, this like world religions paradigm, which, of course, all of your listeners will be very familiar with, is a really Mm. bad way of thinking about sort of this sphere that we so typically call religions and all the sort of the messiness, the interconnectedness um, that exists. So that kind of is, is again, driving this sort of looking at that messiness rather than assuming there are these neat little sort of contained boxes of religion. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Paul. Um, And that, you know, you've started there talking about some of the the contents and some of the topics and themes and so on. Um, When one is presented with the whole gamut of the study of religion in all its forms and all its disciplinary um, silos, etc. And when religion is such an amorphous concept that can be defined in so many different ways and touches all all areas of society, if one wants it to, how do you go about selecting and what goes in, uh, what gets in, what is left out, who speaks, who doesn't? How do you even approach that? I mean, I'm certainly, maybe in another 20 years or something, I would feel perhaps confident enough to take on such a such a task, but not now. Yeah, sure. I said, I mean, it was partly, I said, a sort of a child of, of necessity that the resources of my students didn't exist, so I started creating them. Um, and like many people, I've got a 12-week course. I've got to fit sort of 12 weeks of teaching into there so there's basically the 12 topics more or less which i would teach um within this um but of course you know this is not just a book for my course it's there for other people um and to make it a useful book there's sort of 18 chapters which which can be used um i mean partly of course i didn't just rely upon myself um i i sort of you know sent out like a draft to sort of um sort of colleagues stuff it up online and said okay ideas what do I need in here that I'm not sort of covering? What could I leave out? What should I include? Um, and something I, I think you mentioned, sort of the cognitive science of religion, um, is mm. something I cover here. It's a topic I have never taught. I knew something about it. Um, and I mean, this book, I mean, I guess in a sense, you know, there's 20 years of sort of, I'm teaching about 22, 23 years of teaching sort of experience sort of behind it. Um, but also, I mean, six years or sort of just more if you like for me starting to write drafts of this book to it finally sort of coming out so you know when I started I thought I guess it's just a textbook in a couple of years I'll, I'll have this churned out but one I said you know to make it sort of comprehensive um and bring in stuff like this I had to do my own research again keeping up to date on sort of the fields across 18 chapters that was a lot of work in itself mm. so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my dean uh, was not happy with me at times. Six years writing a book is not what you should do these days in academia, mm-hmm. particularly not a textbook. <laughs> um, they like to press, fortunately, so so that's okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that drives it. But, I mean, also sort of contemporary concerns. So, I mean, I've got a particular sort of chapter on politics. Um, which again, mm. It's partly maybe my sort of current sort of situation. I've got international relations students, as I've mentioned. Um, but also, of course, this book, again, as I started to write it, it became a much more political book than I had envisaged at the beginning. Um, and by political, I don't mean sort of big P party political. 
but you know it was mm. like you know why does the study of religion look the way it does you know there were there were choices there and again back to like the decolonial thing we haven't sort of maybe raised that we'll raise it later you've said but of course there's this whole sort of western sort of heritage who gets sort of um picked who gets money who has the resources to do things like this so so all of that sort of becomes um part of this so trying to sort of pick up the, these key issues um again it's focused on contemporary sort of things so there's there is a sort of chapter on their history i'm kind of like a historian by training and inclination so you know mm. I think we only answered now because of the past um so that's in there so i mean again partly like the final sort of section is like you know key issues that perhaps again students want to know about so there's a chapter around fundamentalism and violence not time to end that they're linked but you know these often come up in the same breath um understanding religious diversity which you know is the situation of our societies so yeah i mean it, it it's my interests what other people told me should be in here um but again you know there, there's stuff that's not in here for a while, I was thinking of having a whole chapter on race, but simply there wasn't space. But race there throughout the book, at least two chapters cover yeah. it quite heavily. So yeah, there, there, there's choices, there's there, there's page counts as well, word counts. All of this yeah. is a pressure. Yeah, uh, yeah, the realities of just getting something out there. But and as I've said before, like the 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 tone and the way in which you manage to to present what you have is is really. Um, solid and uh, I use the word ironic like it's it's generous in tone and accessible uh, throughout um so we are we're coming towards time and I've got two things I'm going to raise the word critical first and then we'll raise decal on the island and we'll we'll finish with those two things um what you've mentioned um you know taking a critical approach to religious diversity within an interreligious framework and so on. Um, I know that in the past, for example, on the Religious Studies Project website, indeed, we've had sort of uh, heated debates uh, with, with yourself and, and some others about, uh, you know, about terms like critical and discourse and, and, and things like that. Um, so just wondering you know, what, what is the role of that word critical here? And I guess how you would see it in, in understanding religion, both the book and the phenomenon. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Great question. Well, critical, I mean, well, perhaps sort of rather grandiosely, I, I set out what I call a critical hermeneutical phenomenology of like as a grand theory behind this book it doesn't i think interfere get in the way of anything but it's kind of like you know my background working three suppositions and critical in that does quite a few things so it's all those disciplines we might call critical which have questioned if you like the norms that have uh, guided the world and academia for so long so feminism is in there um, decolonial criticism is in there. Um, those strands, if you like, out of figures like sort of Foucault and Derrida um, come into this. All this sort of stuff that, you know, questions the, the common sense to taken for grantedness um, of our standard ways of looking at the world. So all of that is part of the critical and, again, sort of, if you like, a social constructivist take mm. um, and something like sort of a hermeneutics of suspicion. I mean, I'm throwing a lot of words 
out here, which again, some of the listeners may think, well, what does that mean? Is all readily explained in the book, um, hopefully in a couple of ways. Um, but, you know, all, all of this if you like, is part of sort of what I'm trying to sort of come back to again. So like religious sort of diversity is not a normal, natural thing out there. Well, in a sense it is. But at the same time, why does it look the way it does? Why do we break it down into the ways that we do? Who gets advantaged and disadvantaged by this? You know, these are the questions that are taking place um within this. So so that's really what critical is doing in this. Fantastic. Um and let's just because it this seems quite sort of awkward just shunting shunting on through, but yeah, uh, yes, do check out the book for let's just say all these terms are like very helpfully broken down and given their own headings and subheadings and text boxes. The book is riven with text boxes, um, which are which are great. Um but I don't want to give this short shrift. We've got a few more minutes, but decolonizing. So uh, I know I know you point out at the beginning of the book that you know this is it's not a decolonized textbook. It couldn't possibly claim to be that. No one scholar could do that, etc. But as I said, I think you've made a remarkable and generous attempt at doing so. So I guess. What is decolonization for you and why is it necessary and how have you attempted to do so in this text? That's a nice, easy question. Thank you. Um, easy, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'll try not to take the next hour on this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the shortest possible answer I can give, if I decolonization is realising that the way things are understood, theorised, looked at in the West are not the only way that things can be understood, theorised or looked at. You know, mm-hmm. but tending, depending upon where we stand, we see things differently. Um, and it's not about sort of something, and again, you know, me 10 years ago when I was sort of teaching perhaps a class on, you know, Buddhism, we'd have sort of, you know, 10 weeks sort of history, Buddha, meditation, sort of women in Buddhism, and then like a session sort of orientalism. This is sort of the decolonial sort of bit, all of this, we have to understand this. Um, And that, if you like, over the course of writing this book, as well as sort of in a much longer journey, I've realised it's simply not adequate. We can't sort of like have it as like a tag on extra. Mm -hmm. It has to sort of weave through everything. So yeah, there is a sort of a chapter here on sort of um, colonialism, decolonization, post-colonialism, orientalism, all the sort of the theory and background is discussed there. Yeah, the stuff that you'd have to do. Yeah, you've got to do that. But then again, I say it's there through the rest of the book. So I mean, I've mentioned a chapter on politics. You know, again, to politics of study, well, why does the study of religion look the way it does? That becomes part of this. Um and again, decolonize into critical theory, because while, if you like, decolonization relies upon a lot of this critical theory, it comes from a lot of white, Western, middle-class men. It looks the way it does because of that. And critical theory can be used, if you like, to support the old power structures. It isn't necessarily mm-hmm. takes them apart. So there's a, you know, you get a lot of sort of perhaps 
critical scholars who only cite white Western men or virtually only cite white Western men and say, what's going on there? So all the way through, I wouldn't say every chapter sort of includes at least some scholars from the global south or scholars of colour or whatever it may be. But, you know, I've tried to sort of make an attempt as far as possible, you know, that throughout the book, you know, we get more voices coming in because simply the more voices, mm-hmm. the more we see, the, the more ways of looking at the world. Um, and this relates to a bit I talk about at the beginning, what I call sort of methodological polymorphism in a very grand mm-hmm. sort of phrase. Um, but it's basically the fact, you know, that religion is not a single thing. It's not a clear thing. We're not quite sure what it is or sort of, of course, whether we should even use it. And of course, that's a debate in the book. You know, is this even a useful term um, to use? So, you know, if we want to sort of get some grasp on that, then we have to come in from all sorts of different angles. Some of this might be sort of um, sort of contradictory bits of theory at a time, but each bit sort of helps us see something of this messy picture. You know, theory is not up there to give us like a nice, clear picture in front of us. It's basically to help us make sense of, of the mess and at least sort of find some way to weave through the mess rather than sort of to sort it out um, into neat boxes. Yeah, fantastic. And like, yeah, we're we're all the products of the, the systems that we've, we've been through, etc. And, and no one scholar uh, could be successful in in fully decolonizing anything um but my impression and my hope would certainly be that you know the the next generation of students reading textbooks like this with a really diverse range of examples from throughout the globe and which brings in voices from the global south and brings in voices of women and non-white scholars etc um yes you know it's it's a a stepping stone, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a step in the right direction. And and that generation, you know, will hopefully be more and more and will eventually get further and further from these sort of entrenched uh, white heteronormative colonialist power structures that dominate the academic industry. But it, it's a really, really good um, step along that journey um, and um, one that hopefully others will, will attempt to, to model and take inspiration from. Um, we're, we're out of time. Yeah. Um, I'll try and link in the description of the podcast to that you've, you've done uh, on one of our sort of uh, collegiate podcasts, the New Books Network. You've got a, a nice long hour and a half interview talking about the book if people want to hear more in that sense. And, of course, uh, you can attempt to, to purchase or suggest that libraries purchase as well but um, it's been a pleasure having you on the rsp Paul, it's been so a pleasure to talk to you too chris fantastic thanks so much to chris and paul for this excellent episode today and thanks to you our listeners for tuning in we hope that you have enjoyed the episode please head over to social media to let us know what you thought you can find us on facebook twitter and instagram also be sure to head to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com where you can find a transcript of this episode and much more. And of course, as always, we appreciate any support you're able to give, whether it's liking, commenting, and sharing our posts on on social media, or signing up to become a patron 
at patreon.com slash project rs where you can sign up to donate as little as one dollar a month which would go a long way into helping support the work here at the rsp you can also consider a one-time donation via paypal so please let us know what you thought and we look forward to tuning back in with you next week all that's left to say is thanks Thanks for for listening. listening The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartasius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.